actually open it to Exodus 20. Um, the text that's printed is Deuteronomy 5. We're going to read um, both of those in a minute. So um, it would be helpful if you had a Bible. You can open to the first one that we'll look at. So uh, we're in a series on the Ten Commandments, and it's been really great for me personally um, to, to study the, the Ten Commandments, to discover really aspects of God's law that um, I hadn't considered before. And it's probably especially true this morning with the fourth commandment, which is about the Sabbath. Um, I read a lot this week that I would uh, love to recommend to you if you are interested. There, there were just a couple copies of an article um, that I found. It's on the Internet. You can, I, I can send a link out to you if you're interested, if there aren't enough copies left. But it's, it's an article by a uh, Presbyterian minister named Charles Jacob, and he, um, I believe he's a pastor in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Wrote, a, wrote an article on the Sabbath called Eat the Fat, Drink the Sweet, and Be Merry. And uh, it's a really, really good article. I was thinking about just reading it today instead of actually preaching a sermon. So um, we'll see. Maybe I should have ended up doing that after all. But um, <clears throat> there, there may be a couple copies of it. Uh, I highly recommend it. So um, my guess is that when you consider the, the Ten Commandments, all of them, um, that the Fourth Commandment might seem kind of the most puzzling uh, in various ways, uh, you know, the New Testament doesn't seem to talk about the Sabbath much, so should we even keep it anymore? Is it for Christians? Um, or if we do keep it, well, what day is it supposed to be on now? And why is that? Or um, why, what exactly am I supposed to do or not do? Um, can I go out to eat? Can I watch televised sports? Can I go for a hike or for a run? Can I take a nap? Uh, do I have to be in church all day long? Um, and how is this part of the moral law? That's what this is, right? It's the, the summary of God's moral law. What could be moral about the concepts of you know, st- structured times of work and rest? Um, in fact, most American evangelicals probably feel no obligation to observe the Sabbath um, in any form, to keep it holy, to devote a, a day to rest and worship. Um, and I think maybe that's largely due to a, a serious misunderstanding of the nature of the day, what it was meant for. Um, so let's try to improve our understanding on the nature of the day. Uh, again, if, you, if you've been following through the series, you've noticed that we've been going through Exodus 20 up until now. Um, which was the first time that God gave the Ten Commandments to his people Israel after having delivered them out of Egypt. And Deuteronomy 5, which is what's printed in the bulletin, uh, is the second time. It's the reiteration of the Ten Commandments. Um, And and we're going to look actually at both uh, passages. I'm going to read both of those, um, even though only the Deuteronomy one is um, printed in the bulletin, because I want to call attention to actually the differences between the two texts. Um, And Fourth commandment itself is the same in both places, to remember or to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Um, But the reasons, the motives that are annexed to the fourth commandment uh, differ between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Um, So we're going to look at um, the the reasons for uh, observing the Sabbath, and there are maybe even more reasons than are... um, just uh, stated explicitly in those commandments, but uh, we're going to look at those this morning. So 
Let's pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we come to your word, uh, we give you thanks for it. And at the same time, confess our need for your help in order to understand it and in order to uh, cherish it and to be changed by it. And and so we ask for that help now. We pray that you would uh, help us send your spirit to uh, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Deuteronomy 5, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, which is a reference to the first time he commanded it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. It's basically a vagrant. Um, That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, Joe Edwards told me this, and um, pray for their family. They're all sick, and he's not here, so it's good for me because... now he can't correct me on the illustration I'm going to use, but um, he told me that he's been to Israel a bunch for work, right? Uh, Intel, this lucky guy, just gets to go over to Israel for work. Um, he's, he's been there several times, and he's told me a bunch about um, the Sabbath laws there. And one of them just struck me as, um, well, did you know that uh, in, in modern Israel, on the Sabbath, which in their calendar is on Saturday, um, Sabbath laws are so comprehensive that you're not allowed to push the button on an elevator. That uh, elevators are programmed on that day to stop at every floor so that you don't have to do the extremely difficult work of sticking your finger out and pushing the button. Right? That's ridiculous. Just call that what it is. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like we're not too far from that. It seems like maybe that's just a little bit further down on the same spectrum that we generally find ourselves with regard to thoughts of the Sabbath. Right? Uh, so Charles Jacob, who wrote that article that I referred to, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and be merry. He, he wrote this. These are kind of his opening uh, sentences. Recently, I heard a student describe to a professor a Sunday church picnic with his PCA church. All was well until he happened to mention that some of them played a little volleyball after lunch. The professor then curtly responded, must not be a very Presbyterian church. 
are we really less Presbyterian if we play a little casual foot, uh, volleyball with our uh, covenant family on the Lord's Day? Similarly, while in Scotland, I came across many adults who remember Sunday as a day of great torment when they were children. Playgrounds were off limits. Toys were locked up. Many were forced to stay inside all day. In short, they were grounded weekly. Why does a day that is supposed to celebrate God as creator, redeemer, and consummator have to feel like a prison lockdown? Maybe, um, have you all seen the movie Chariots of Fire? It's a great movie, right? There's really good stuff in there. Um, but I'll use it for a, as a bad example, actually. When Eric Little, who the story is about primarily, he's this, uh, he's this great Christian, um, devoted uh, follower of Christ, going to be a missionary, also an athlete, and goes to the Olympics kind of against his, his pious sister's uh, advice, um, goes to the Olympics and he, he wins the 400 meters at the Olympics and he was supposed to run the 100 meters, etc., etc. right? <clears throat> Big story, you're probably familiar with it. But there's this scene where uh, he and his sister are walking into church in Scotland. Might be a Presbyterian church, who knows? Most of them in Scotland are. Um, walking into church and this, this soccer ball, which they call football, right? Uh, bounces across his path and he says, whoa, whoa, what day is this? To the children who are kicking the, the soccer ball. Sunday, not a day for football, is it? seem a little strange to you? Like, he said it really nicely, right? Like, smile on his face. He's a warm, gentle guy. Um, but he just kind of squashed those kids, right? They're having fun. They were, they were taking delight. And, um, and I think that even if you're not from a Scottish Presbyterian tradition, thoughts of the Sabbath pull toward that kind of restrictiveness, don't they? When you think of the Sabbath, you think of things you shouldn't do. Um, but hey, you know, you may not be from a Scottish Presbyterian tradition, but we sure are in a Scottish Presbyterian church <coughs> here, so uh, restrictiveness pretty much defines us, right? I mean, um, and there's a, I'll give you a little bit of disclosure here. Um, in our denomination, the, the officers, the elders and the deacons, um, are required to sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and its catechisms as um, containing the system of doctrine that's taught in the Bible, right? So we look at the Westminster, everything's written there, we think, yes, that's right, that's good theology, that represents um, what's, what you find in the scriptures. And actually, when you're ordained, you're permitted very little leeway to disagree with the standards in any way, the Westminster standards. Um, but a fairly common exception that ministers take when they are ordained is with regard to the Westminster's teaching here on the Sabbath, on the fourth commandment, and I'm actually one of those who's taken an exception. So I think that the Westminster is too restrictive in its understanding of the fourth commandment. It's got a lot of great things to say about the Sabbath, but I think it's too restrictive, and I've expressed that view in the Presbytery, and the exception was allowed, and I was ordained, and no one has expressed concern over my teaching that view, <clears throat> but I just think you should know that as we explore this commandment. Um, but I also don't think that my view is innovative or uh, radical or unorthodox. I'm actually persuaded of a view that is slightly different from the Westminster's view <clears throat> because I believe that the Bible teaches it. 
and um, not just because I don't like the way the Westminster makes me feel when I read it, read what it has to say about the, the fourth commandment. So if you want to talk more about that, let's get coffee and we'll, we'll discuss my exception uh, to the standards. But <clears throat> back to the point, um, we are strongly tempted to think of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath holy, as morally irrelevant um, or even as so restrictive and so glum as to just be off-putting, just completely repulsive. We don't have any, anything to do with uh, something that just seems so restrictive to us. Uh, but the Bible doesn't set it forth that way. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture of the nature of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is massively important. Um, this is something that I've actually just been coming to realize myself in, in studies this week even. Uh, it's massively important for our entire view of life for our entire view of history, for our view of our destiny. And it actually informs how we're to spend our lives showing mercy to other people. Um, as, as Charles Jacob again said, the Sabbath is a day that is supposed to celebrate God as creator, as redeemer, and as consummator. That sounds theological, doesn't it? <clears throat> Creator, Redeemer, Consummator, right? Um, but what's the significance of that? In, in Exodus 20, the first um, uh, section of the Ten Commandments that we read, at the first giving of the law, the, the reason for remembering the Sabbath, to keep it holy, is this. It says in verse 11, For in six days the Lord, Yahweh, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and made it holy. So um, normally when we think of rest, which is that word in English, um, we think of a break that we need to take because we're tired, right? Because we're exhausted, we're spent. We need to recharge, we need to regain our strength. Uh, but with God, this is not how the word rest is being used. Right? Um, it almost probably be blasphemous to use it of God that way. John Frame says this, <clears throat> um, celebration of a completed divine work is called rest. As it, an eternal omnipotent being, God does not need to rest in a literal sense, but he does finish tasks. And the completion of his major tasks is important to him, a matter for celebration. Right? So for God, the completion of creation was a task worth celebrating. Well, let's actually walk through creation so you can get a sense of that, uh, because I, I don't think most of us, when we read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, capture the sense of delight and, and celebration that God has over his creation. So Genesis, right in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. That was the first day. And we need to get this. When it says, God saw that the light was good, that is not just some solemn declaration of the moral value of light. It is good. It is well. 
when God made light, he, he saw it. It made him happy. It pleased him. And then God separated the land from the water, and he saw that it was good. He brought forth vegetation and saw that it was good. And he spoke the sun, moon, and stars into existence and saw that it was good. He created sea creatures and birds and saw that it was good. He made the beasts of the earth and saw that it was good. Then God created man in his own image, after his own likeness, and blessed him and gave all creation to him as a gift and as a responsibility. And then he looked at everything he made and saw, and behold, it was very good. For the joy of sharing himself, God created all things, and he did it well, and it pleased him. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, it says at the beginning of chapter 2, and all the host of them. Then on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So there's some repetition there for didactic emphasis, right, to make a point. Even though God had no need of rejuvenation, it didn't drain him to speak all things into existence. He rested. He blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. So his rest here should be understood as his enjoyment of his finished work. It was finished, and it was good. It should be understood as his taking pleasure in the accomplishment of his purpose. There had been a sense of movement toward a goal, and now there was a sense of arrival, of satisfaction, of consummation. And, um, and it pleased him, and it, it was really a delight uh, for everyone. Um, his, his, the angels and Adam and Eve who were able to participate in that Sabbath. This is what it says in Job uh, 38, actually, where God is speaking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? That's, um, that's what it was like when... God created the heavens and the earth when he was finished with his work, when he saw that it was all very good, and when he rested and celebrated on the seventh day. So um, what I want you to see is that there's, there's eschatology. Right? There's destiny. Even in that first creation week, day one, two, three, it's good, but it's not finished yet. Day four, five, six, it's all so good. The, but God's not there yet. The world's not there yet. Right? Day seven, ah, blessed perfection and joy. Right? Things were the way that they were supposed to be. And that delighted God that he had accomplished that, that he had finished that work and things were the way they were supposed to be. And so you know how the, uh, the number seven, all throughout the scriptures and even in our culture today, is, is symbolic of what? Symbolic of perfection and completion. 
that comes from this passage, that comes from here. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy because it was the completion, the consummation of the divine purpose in creation. It was where he was going with creation, and he got there, right? And it pleased him. And so it was holy. And so right there, you've basically got the statement that there on the first Sabbath, it was heaven on earth. And the fact that this came before, um, before mankind sinned, before the fall, is actually the strongest argument we have for the continuation of the Sabbath uh, observance. There aren't many things that God instituted for humanity before the fall. There's a couple big ones, right? There's work, and there's marriage, and there's the Sabbath. And so we believe that those are big parts of who we were made to be in God's image. So the Sabbath is representative of how everything is supposed to be. And so we should probably figure out what that means and how to observe it, right? In light of God's creation, here's what the Sabbath means for us. It means that even if we had never fallen into sin, even if we had continued in perfect obedience and perfect favor with God, simply being made in God's image means that we should imitate him. And when he rested, when he celebrated the consummation of his work and creation, we should imitate that, right? And so we are made to work for six days. That's the cycle that he's given us. We work for six days and we rest on the seventh in order to reflect the movement, the trajectory of creation week toward the holy, joyful perfection of God's purpose. But, um, but then we did fall into sin, didn't we? And, um, we thought that we knew better than God what constituted blessed perfection and how to achieve it. We fixed our eyes on ourselves, on what we could do to achieve our own glory and joy. And the whole world fell out of God's Sabbath. The whole world. Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book about sin, which you should probably read. It's really good. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which pretty much says it all. Our rebellion against God was not the way that it was supposed to be. And because of our rebellion, the whole world was thrown out of kilter. And it is now not the way that it is supposed to be. Our rebellion against God did that. And you sense that now whenever you encounter suffering whenever you encounter injustice, or even just the difficulties of work, of everyday life in a broken world, you can sense the brokenness, the futility, the loss of Sabbath wholeness. And this is why it's because God cursed the world for our rebellion, for our sin. It says in Genesis three seventeen, <clears throat> God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field, plants that we have to farm. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. 
not just picking fruit from the trees. It's food that has to be prepared by labor. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Till you die. So now our work is toil. Our work is hard now. Now our work is two steps forward, one step back, sometimes vice versa. Right? Now our work is filled with preventing and repairing and decontaminating. Now we hardly ever experience consummation in our work and never any consummation that lasts. But God has promised us a consummation. He's promised us a fulfillment, a completion, a rest that lasts. In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, which is in the section that we read for the New Testament, but I didn't plug this verse in there. I probably should have. Hebrews 4 verse 9, it says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and that Sabbath is heaven. That Sabbath ultimately is eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, where God has made all things new and all things right. When we reach that Sabbath, the curse will be forever lifted, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and every burden will be transformed. It will be a time of celebration of perfection, of completion, of the way things are supposed to be, the likes of which you can't even imagine. And God calls it a great, joyful, extravagant feast that marks the beginning of all things working the way they are supposed to forever. The Sabbath is eternity. It's the great reward of believers And it has been the steady goal of God as our Redeemer for thousands of years. It's where he's going with this whole thing. And Paul writes in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's given us little glimpses throughout history and throughout his word of this great Sabbath, right? Um, Throughout the history of his dealings with his people, we've received these little glimpses of what it's going to be like. He gave the Sabbath day, which we find in our text, one day in seven, to rest and to celebrate him, to celebrate his provision and his promises and his purposes. He gave the high feast days, which several times a year all the people were to gather together and give them extra Sabbath days on those high feast days. Right? Normally they celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday, but sometimes it'd be the day after that. Sometimes it'd be on the first day of the week, Sunday, that they'd have this extra Sabbath. These high feast days, whereas people would gather and they would share his provision together, especially with the poor. What you see there is, is, a, is a list. You're going to rejoice in this feast with the widow and the orphan and the Levite, who's the poor priest who doesn't have any property, and with the sojourners, with the vagrants, the homeless people, you're going to celebrate and you're going to share what you have with them on these extra Sabbath days. And he gave Sabbath years. Every seven years, 
when the toil would stop, or it was supposed to, the toil would stop, the people would stop farming and tending their orchards and their vineyards, and the land would just grow on its own and it would produce on its own, and it would be enough for everyone, including the poor. It's made explicit. It would be enough for everyone, including the poor. <clears throat> and then he gave the great year of Jubilee. It's a year after seven Sabbath years. So every 49 years, then maybe it was the 49th, maybe it was the 50th year, there'd be this year of Jubilee when slaves were to have their debts forgiven, when they and their families could go home and be set free, when people could return to their family lands to their homes. And these are just little glimpses of the way that it's supposed to be. And the greatest of all the glimpses of the Sabbath that uh, this world has seen so far is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in his resurrection. Our Redeemer went to the cross to suffer God's curse for us, to remove God's righteous anger from us, and to make heaven our home. And he was in the grave dead on the Sabbath. And maybe for a moment it looked like God had abandoned us all, that he'd given up his goal, that he'd given up his pursuit of bringing us into his eternal rest and celebration. But then on the first day of the week, our hope was renewed never to die again because Jesus was raised from the dead, immortal, never to die again. He's the firstborn of the new creation, He's the first citizen of the new heavens and the new earth. So the resurrection is the greatest picture that we have, that we have seen so far, of what things are supposed to be like, of what they will be like in eternity on the great Sabbath. And the law says, um, which we've read this morning from Deuteronomy 5, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. So to the people of Israel who were delivered from 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, God miraculously delivered them and, and made them to be his people and was leading them toward his rest. But the gospel says, you shall remember that you are a slave to yourself. You can't escape that kind of slavery on your own. You are a slave to sin, to your own desires, and Jesus, your God, delivered you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, keep the Lord's day. Keep the Lord's day. Remember the works that he has already accomplished. He said on the cross, it is finished. His work is done. So remember the great celebration that is to come when all things are summed up in him who is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He's the creator and the Redeemer and the Consummator. <clears throat> Charles Jacob says that redemption, which is what we find by faith in Christ, redemption calls for real celebration. So you need a weekly reminder of the way that things are supposed to be, the way things will be. It will certainly be that way for you if your trust is in Jesus Christ. You will experience the great eternal Sabbath uh, Thomas Watson says, he's an old Puritan, says that the Sabbath on earth is a shadow and a type of the glorious rest 
an eternal Sabbath we hope for in heaven. So just think about it. The eternal Sabbath won't be characterized by somber fasting, will it? It won't be characterized by drudgery. You won't feel like you're grounded. And we certainly don't see those things in the resurrected Lord. Those don't characterize who Jesus is. So why would we keep the Lord's Day, which is the first day of the week, the Sabbath that has undergone a schedule change due to the resurrection? Why would we keep the Lord's Day as a restrictive drudgery? The Sabbath is joy, not glum. The Sabbath is feasting, not fasting. The Sabbath is mercy, not oppression. And it is all these things because of our God, because he shares his love for us at great cost to himself, because his joy spills out from him like a fountain, because he is merciful to broken people like us. And so we keep the Sabbath by imitating him in those things, by resting and celebrating the way that he does. We share our love. We play together in our joy. We show mercy to others. Um, Charles Jacob took the title for that article from a passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is a a beautiful passage when um, the exiles returned and they spent a holy day hearing the law read. It says uh, afterwards, Nehemiah and Ezra, who is the priest, and the Levites, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. One of the best things about our church, I think, is uh, to see all the little children and the fact that they love being here. And if you ask them why they love being here, it's because they get to play with their friends. And, um, and that's what we should be doing together. We should be playing with our friends here in church, our brothers and our sisters. We should be playing and rejoicing like David who was dancing through the streets of Jerusalem when the Ark of the Covenant came, came in. And his wife was stern and said, you shouldn't do that. Right? But he said, this is a day of joy and of celebration. And I'm the king of Israel, and I'm going to dance in the streets. I'm going to play, and I'm going to sing, Right? So maybe we should learn to clap while we sing. John Frame said, By its very nature, the Sabbath is a feast, not a fast. It is a time of abundance, not deprivation. It should be a time of delight, a time of play and joy. And in that enjoyment, we anticipate the prosperity promised in God's covenant, the delight awaiting us in the new heavens and the new earth. So then the writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, which we do 
by resting in Christ, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in his provision of the eternal Sabbath and eternal joy in God's presence. And having received then that promise in him by his mercy, we anticipate eternity. We have a foretaste of eternity as we rest and as we worship together on the Lord's Day in ways that are chiefly characterized, I think, by celebration. We've got the resurrection of Jesus behind us, and we've got the promise of glory out in front of us. And, um, and so it makes sense when E.C. Bell, the pastor in Newburgh, says that Christians should be the best partiers. Christians should be the best partiers. And the Sabbath should symbolize that. I think the reception that we had after our particularization service was a great example of that, where we all, uh, people put work in, people put effort in on that Sabbath day, on the Lord's day. Was that wrong? No. Because we all uh, delighted in uh, each other's company and we played together. We, for adults, playing sometimes means eating good food, right? Eating great cupcakes. <laughs> that's, that's play for adults. That's enjoying God's creation. That's enjoying the material, physical, tangible things that God has set us in to enjoy with thanksgiving to him. Deuteronomy 16 says, you shall, rejoice in your, you shall rejoice in your feast. And this is a time where it's describing the harvest feast. You start bringing in the harvest, you have a feast. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So we keep the Sabbath by working six days, to prepare for the seventh so that it can be a day to celebrate and play. So it can be a day to give rest to our families, rest to our employees, so that they can rest along with us. It's a day to show mercy to those who are in need. Even as God has shown you mercy, since God has delivered you from the toil of slavery, then imitate him and deliver others from their bondage, from their oppression. It's not just a rest for you to enjoy for yourself. It's given to you in these commandments for your family and for your employees, for the, the animals who are working your land, right? It's not just a rest for you. It's, it's given as a communal rest, as a shared rest, shared with you by Christ freely at his great expense. So give relief to others freely, even if it costs you something. Jesus showed through several uh, miracles, which were controversial in his day, that healing was especially appropriate on the Sabbath, right? As a picture of the restoration to perfection that he's bringing. So reflect that restoration. Do some benevolent volunteering. Go counsel some people who are hurting. Heal and help one another in the church with the gospel. Heal and help your neighbors. Even if it means a little work, Because works of mercy are really at the heart of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about so much more than lists of do's and don'ts. It's about God's good work to get you to heaven's joys through his son, Jesus Christ. So let that shape your observance of the fourth commandment. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, for for myself, um, it's hard for me not to think of the Sabbath as a drudgery. I think of what I'm supposed to do and how um, how little 
that entices me. Lord, would you open my eyes and the eyes of my friends here to see what your word says about the Sabbath, about your goals, your designs for your creation and for redemption, the trajectory that you set uh, all of world history on that will one day be consummated in the great Sabbath. We look forward to that day and we pray that it would come quickly. And until then, let that Sabbath, let our great hope, and let future glory inform what we do, what we spend our lives doing. Would you help us to assess our lives in light of this this pattern that you've set forth for us? Six days of work and one of rest. Would you help us to order our entire lives in a way that reflect your gospel and the hope of glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.